wage love, grow liberation. No makes the way for your yes. Yes is a future. Resilience is our birthright. Ooh, ah, wow, how is one way of shaping justice pleasurably. Affirm survival, affirm brilliance, affirm resistance. And good people, if you think this moment isn't about you or your love or your family, you are wrong. These are just some of the world-making sensibilities of which I am so grateful that the Brown Sisters have offered up over the course of their work on pleasure, survival, undoing, reimagining, and holding on to one another while we do. That was the voice of Misty DeBerry from Dartmouth College. Autumn and I were recently invited to Dartmouth College on Zoom, obviously, to do a live show with the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies program. Misty was the moderator and the event was organized by Mingwei Huang and a team including Bevan Dunbar, Catherine Durag, Devorah greenberg Colling, Jody Davi, and Darshana Griggs. We were honored to bring the show to them and now here we are bringing it to you. That's hey y'all! Hey, everybody. How are y'all doing? I want y'all to know that, like, I don't get dressed up anymore because it's, you know, pandemic, but pandemic. I, pandemic, but I, I'm wearing a skirt. And so if you can see, hey. I'm wearing this, like, new leopard print pleated skirt thing. And I just want to show that off. I'm just, I'm not going to show what I'm wearing on the bottom, but <laughs> I'm glad that you okay. did. <laughs> anyway, I... I haven't dressed up in so long, sister. I'm so glad to be dressed up and speaking to you. I am um, so glad to be speaking to you and only dressed up from the top half. And yeah, fuck respectability. That's that's, fuck respectability. Yes. Um. Um, <laughs> I love, okay. So um, sister, can we briefly, can I just ask briefly how you are? Oh, mm. Mm. Well, I feel that like many people around the world right now, mm -hmm. I'm having in increasingly a more and more difficult time every day answering that question. Yeah. Um, I think um, just to be, you know, fully here and transparent yeah. about how I'm doing, I, I think I'm managing, a, um, there's some dissociation happening inside uh -huh. my body right there's some yeah. way that i'm you know that i'm kind of dissociating through my days right now uh -huh. um and one of the things that i've learned over the years is to really honor that thing that my body does sometimes right I to be like oh yeah actually thank you my body mm -hmm. <laughs> thank you my body for giving me a little bit of uh you know a, you know, putting a little bit of um, a porous wall between me and whatever is happening right now. <laughs> yes, you know, so I'm hydrated. I've been eating vegetables yes. and, um, you know, I, I've been doing this um, 
Oh, well, you and I are doing this together, but the, yes. but the folks who are in this room don't know that yet, but we've been Tell doing me. this, this sugar detox. Um, and I'm noticing just feeling, um, you know, um, the, the combination of like, I feel so much better in my body right now because yes. of the fact that I've just taken processed sugars out of my, out of my body. Yeah. Um, while also noticing like all the other things that happen when you do a sugar detox, which is like, oh, resurfacing of old memories. Oh, yes. dreams that are quite <laughs> intense. Oh, like yes. all, all the things are also happening. But um, all that is to say that, you know, I'm here. I do feel like I'm, I'm here. I'm as, I'm as close to here as I can be um, and very pleased to be here. And also there's a part of me that's still kind of offline. Yeah. Uh, but I'm just going to let her... Yeah. You know, be where she is. That's where she needs to be. How are you? Yeah. Um, I'm really moved by your check-in and <laughs> I feel a lot of like depth and respect for that. Right. I, I feel like I've also been through the pandemic, particularly leaning into gratitude for the fact that I'm like, I know how to numb myself. <laughs> um, sometimes that is useful. So <laughs> that might be a new song. That might be a new new hit in your Instagrams. But mm -hmm. yeah, I feel um, today I woke up feeling a lot of dread energy. And, mm. uh, and what I have noticed a lot lately is that even if I'm not reading the news, which I often don't, you know, I don't run towards the news at the beginning of my day. I kind of let the news find me as it were. <laughs> um, but <laughs> even if I don't run towards it, there's still the emotional impact that the news is having as an empathic person, I feel it. And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. like, you know, when I glance over, I'm like, oh, look at the, the Senate <laughs> pushing along this, you know, totally wrong person to the Supreme Court. Look at that. Uh, hmm, here comes another debate where it's just gonna be like another platform given to a racist, um, fascist, um, evil person to speak to the people that like him. And you know, I really, <laughs> um, I'm like, hmm, no. So I feel the dread of all those things. Um, but inside of that, I do feel the the good news of I've been really being good to my body. I've yeah. been letting people take good care of me and asking for support and help, asking for like energetic blessings. Um, and like my turtle is here, Nalito. And today um, Nalito started climbing up the side of their house and falling down and then climbing back up and falling down. And it's just for anyone who's wondering, Nalito does have their own Instagram. Just Nalito has their own Instagram. Nalito, Nalito the Great. <laughs> it's true. I'm that kind of person now. Never expected that. No. Um, <laughs> and none of us expected that either about you. No one expected that, especially Adrian. So um, so the turtle being it's it's oh Nalito, Nalito the Great. The great. Nalito okay? the Great. <laughs> and but the turtle being here is kind of helping me through all this moment because the turtle is just like whatever your concerns are I have my own concerns here I need to eat I need to be taken out of my house so I can poop and then I need to be returned to my house so that I can sleep for 22 hours and I will need that again tomorrow and it's just like 
Slow, slow, slow. And so whenever I'm moving too fast, I literally go over and just take a look at turtle. I'm like, I could be sleeping right now. And that would be a relevant way to be alive and exist. <sighs> that would right. be relevant. That would be relevant. Would be relevant. Right? <laughs> um, I think the nap ministry has some, some wisdom on this, right? The, there's mm -hmm. sleep is a relevant option. Um, and yet I'm choosing to not sleep and to do things. Wow. I'm basically a superhero right now. Right. I feel right. like literally anyone who is doing anything other than resting and looking out the window in panic is like a maze. So yay, everybody. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because this moment is politically potent. This moment is politically potent. It yes, is. In ways that are um, certainly can feel very overwhelming. Yeah. And I think one of the places that we wanted to begin our conversation in earnest with you all today was to really do some context setting yeah. um, about, you know, what is the political potency of this moment? Mm -hmm. And we, we have noticed um, for ourselves that, you know, even for those of us who have been in social justice movements and doing organizing work for for you know many years um it's it can be very easy in the current environment to lose sight of the conditions that have brought us to this time yes um and so occasionally it is very helpful to sort of um you know find that thirty thousand foot view of of our conditions of the circumstances and you know to understand what about what's happening represents our our victory yes. and what about what's happening represents our failure That's and right. how do we be with the complexity of that so right. adrian um i'm wondering if you can kind of take us there first you know that if we can move into understanding yeah. why why is this moment so politically potent yeah. And then how do how do we use that framework or that context for figuring out what our work is right now? That's great. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I have been really sitting in, I was away for the first half of this year. And so I came back in and it was like, whoa, right? So much <laughs> is moving and so fast and conversations, literally like conversations like when I left the country that would not have seemed possible are now the central headlining conversations. They're part of the presidential debates. Defunding the police is mm -hmm. coming out of people's mouths on national network television. Um, so the, I was like, what happened? And I think one of the things I always try to challenge is people like just overnight, like magically like abolition. And it's like, no, <laughs> that's not what was happening. We have been abolitionists since slavery. We have been trying to get free since slavery. And when I say we, they're particularly Black people. Um, but there's also a huge effort and a huge solidarity that has been emerging and growing and weaving and challenging um, with Indigenous people, with immigrants, with Muslims, with everyone who's coming and building and being hated and responding and pushing back and overlapping with each other there's this large we and yeah. what we've been recognizing is like, oh, people of color <clears throat> is kind of a white way of looking at <laughs> what the we is, right? It's mm -hmm. like, y'all who are not white, you all 
in trouble, girl. And it's like, <laughs> no. There's so much nuance and so much movement building and so much um, framework and analysis and alignment that has been happening. And when Black Lives Matter pushed up and Me Too pushed up and this these movements start to really push up and be like, wait, you will no longer treat us this way. We will track it. We will call it in. We will pull it down. We will destroy these infrastructures. That pressure has been building and that pressure has been building. And then we have, we come into the Trumpian political age where farce is politic, where it's all entertainment, where it's all a show. And so I think it's taken us a couple of years to figure out like, how do we intersect with the big show, right? Like mm. we were still trying to do politics while we had someone doing a reality TV show and trying to play the game, you know, like, how do we do this? Oh, it's false news, it's fake news. People don't care, right? But like, but it's fake. Like, it's not even real. Don't you? No, we don't care. And I think it's, it's been the the lineage, right, of those of us who are organizers for years, saying, "Here's the facts. Here's the facts about the climate. Here's the facts about how we're ki being killed by the police. Here's the facts." And then the same response: we don't really care about the facts. So the response mm -hmm. to fake news is is the same thing, just a little flip side, right? We don't care if it's true, false. We don't care about that. Is it entertaining? And can we make money? Right, that's those are two fundamental aspects of our current popular cultural space. So then, I think into that moment, particularly Black organizers brilliantly said, "Let's put on a fucking show. Let's put on a show," and took to the streets, started pushing these actions in a moment when everyone's home, everyone's out of sight, and it was just like. People, we're getting killed no matter what. Even in a pandemic, when no one's out in the street, you find a way to murder us. So right. we will fight back. We will take to the street and fight mm -hmm. back. And you are right in the heart of it all, um, you know, in the uprisings. So I would love to pivot it back to you for a moment. You know, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll get back to like how I think people find their way in this. But I would love to just hear from you, like, when you look at that moment, being in the center of the pandemic and then all of a sudden mm -hmm. this uprising is happening, like what was so potent in, in Minneapolis that opened the door? Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, I think there's there's a combination of things that were happening in Minneapolis. And um, one of those is, so, you know, this, the, the, the outrageous murder of George Floyd yes. um, filmed um, you know, was only 14 blocks away from where I live. Um, that was the third of, um, mm -hmm. of three, um, murders by police, um, that have happened in a very short span of time in Minneapolis. Um, <clears throat> and I mean, I'm sure there are more actually that have gone unreported, but, right. but we had, we had three major inflections in Minneapolis around, um, police murder. Yeah. Um, and, um, Jamar Clark and Philando Castile being the other two that happened really just in the, I believe that all of that has happened in the last four years, if I'm not wow. mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. And so there has been, um, an intense amount of, of just on the ground uh, grassroots organizing around, around the concept of abolition and defunding the police yeah. here in Minneapolis, particularly led by um, a couple of organizations here locally, one called MPD 150, right. um, that they published a report just a few years ago 
um, looking at 150 years of policing in Minneapolis um, and really making a, a very grounded assessment, a grounded uh, data of an evaluation-based assessment of why policing does not work, right? Yep. <laughs> um, that's that rooted in an abolitionist politic, but also yeah. rooted in the data, right? That yeah. like, here's, here's what the Minneapolis Police Department has done from then until now. Um, and so I think that has that has laid the groundwork. There's been really interesting organizing work happening by some a coalition called Reclaim the Block here, yeah. um, by our our Black Visions Collective here in Minneapolis as well. Which you and had so, done a lot of work supporting. Right, right. Yeah. I've I've interfaced with multiple many of these groups in different ways over the last few years. And yeah. shout out to facilitators, um, y'all. Shout out to facilitators. Um, <laughs> and. <laughs> Yeah, and certainly I was doing work with Black Visions Collective on their movement strategy over yeah. the year, um, over the last year leading up to the, the uprising. Yeah. And um, and so just really badass organizers here in the Twin Cities. Yeah. Um, and, and in these coalitions, I wanna also note that many of these coalitions um, are intergenerational, right? So there's organ, there's, it's, um, like huge shout out of this moment, I think does go out to young organizers mm -hmm. um, and new organizers. And there's a layer here that I think is important to uplift that organizations like MPD 150, for instance, are intergenerational. Yes. Um, and that that offers um, that critical lens of having a longer view and being able to work with the complexity of the, of the necessity of multiple organizing approaches, right? So I think all of that, all of that, that was, there was kind of a groundswell already happening. Um, and then, um, and then there was the murder of George Floyd in the midst of this pressurized situation of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I think that one of the things that happened in the, in that first week after his murder, as the uprising was unfolding is that um, particularly for those of us in South Minneapolis at the, you know, who are living through our neighborhood being turned overnight into a war zone, you know, National mm -hmm. Guard coming in, um, helicopters overhead, gunfire, tear gas, you know, constant, constant, you know, assault. Um, we, we had to very quickly adapt to conditions where it was literally not safe or possible to call on the police. Yeah. Um, and there was uh, a really beautiful network that opened up of mutual aid and block by block organizing, like block by block safety based organizing. Um, especially because we did have, you know, white supremacists coming in from outside of the Twin Cities. Yes. Um, both from, you know, the surrounding the, you know, some of the rural areas in Minnesota, but also from other states as well. You know, we had people coming yeah. in who were intentionally infiltrating the protests and starting fires, you know, um, initiating like what we have, you know, there's video recordings of, um, white men dressed in all black outfits, you know, bashing windows and going inside and setting fires inside of businesses, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's all really well documented, right? And so there was a need for this block by block organizing work. And frankly, I think, you know, in addition to all of the organizing that was already happening, 
that was guiding our city more in the direction of considering alternatives to policing. The fact that we suddenly had this experience of having to rely on each other instead of being able to rely on the state, I think I, I think something really shifted for people. Yes. And I think this is that combination that as organizers, we we know we know that this happens, right? That it's never it, it's not that change happens overnight. Yeah. And it's not that change is slow. Yeah. It's always a combination of those realities, right? It's like right. there's slow, you know, um, methodical plotting sometimes demoralizing work that happens in community for years and years and then when the conditions are ripe something else becomes possible and i think what's happened for us in minneapolis is that conditions were ripe and so something else became possible here which is why the city council made the move that they made now it's going to be a long fucking road to get us to the place where, oh, yeah. where we actually can, um, you know, effectively organize a different model. Great. Um, yeah. But our conditions changed. That's great. our conditions changed. Yeah, that's great. And I, I, I'm grateful you walked us through that because I think that understanding how to harness a potent moment is a key part of figuring out the work we need to do at any time. And yeah. I feel like in moments like that. We really understand something that I've been I've been saying for years. Like I'm a post-nationalist. I'm a post-nationalist, and what I mean by that is, it I don't believe it's my duty to save this nation from itself. It was never constructed yes. with me in mind. It has never been loyal to me, and um, and it's so manipulative. So it's constantly trying to convince me that the U.S. the American U.S. project is my political home project and then showing me that it's not right because mm-hmm. I lean on it I invest in it I I show up and I do tons of electoral organizing all this stuff and then no we still will not keep you safe no we still will not even allow you to make choices with your own body no we will continue to put you in harm's right. way so when I say I'm a post-nationalist um, that doesn't mean I give up on the people so for me it's moments yeah. like what happened in Minneapolis this summer where you start to see us as people moving towards a compelling future for ourselves a compelling future that is beyond the boundaries yes. of this nation the thought boundaries and the physical boundaries that we start Mm. to move towards our values and our values are often abolitionist and socialist even if we don't want to put those labels on it yet right that we're like we want to move beyond prisons and we want to live in a place where we all have what we need and that the people the society is at the center of it so it feels like the potency of this moment is we've lived in a heightened degree of recognizing this country is not for the people. This country is for the profit. And if we want something different to happen, we have to be for the people. We have to have movements that are for the people. Yes. And so that's one of the potent aspects of this moment. I think one of the other pieces is how to deal with the white supremacists and the patriarchies and patriarchal people and the haters. And, um, you know, I was, I've been revisiting James Baldwin and revisiting Audre Lorde and revisiting all these different thinkers and revisiting Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, just really sitting in like what we always know, which is we live on this small planet and we have not figured out how to oust anyone from it. Um, so 
we are here and the technology just hasn't caught up with us yet we can't figure it out like we should send them somewhere else but there's nowhere else right there's nowhere else and so i keep having this moment you know because people are like you know when you try to practice being compassionate in public then folks are like well, what about the most extreme like what about the the white supremacist rapist guy what about that you know when uh-huh. every time you talk about abolition it's always like what about the worst 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 example of humanity And I really feel like it's not our job to save those who don't love us, but it is our job to save what we love. And because we live on this planet and we love this planet and we love so many of the people on this planet, we have to recognize that our liberation is tied up with those who don't love us. And we have to have strategies around that, right? Because we can't save what we love by ignoring them. We can't save what we love by hoping they'll just disappear. And I feel like this year has been a year of that reckoning of like, oh, like in a in some brilliant world, we would just go to like some Wakanda where like mixed race people could also be there. And like, it would be great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, Wakanda with me. And then, but, right. But also it's like, it's more complicated than that, right? Even, you know, I think about this throughout black movement, throughout indigenous movement, throughout every movement of of oppressed peoples, we are interconnected with white allies, white people, white partners, white parents, white people, right? And so there's same thing with men, same thing with other spaces, we're not separate from. So I keep thinking of like, what does it look like to develop strategies that allow us to deeply love ourselves and figure out what the right relationship is that it keeps inviting those who currently position themselves as our enemies into right relationship, right? Mm. Not just with us, but with their own miraculous existence, right? Because when I look at that, I'm like, you are out of alignment with your own miraculous existence. You were not born into this world to hate me. That's not your purpose. How did you get so far off purpose? And I think the ways we do our teaching, our education, all of the podcasts that are coming out is one way. I think direct action, the kind of direct action people have been taking all summer, really confronting white supremacy head on and being like, you are not welcome here. We will not pretend this is a dialogue. We will directly confront and push this back. We will tear down the monuments. We will not uplift this. I think that's one way. I think building alliance. um, And I, I really respect those people who are building alliance with folks who still say racist things all the time. You know, I, I feel like I'm mostly around white people who are like, I am paying attention. I am, right. <laughs> you know, and I am like, I've basically removed myself from the microaggressive landscape. Right. For the most right. part. It still That's occasionally. So excellent. Right? So excellent. But most of us don't have that, you know, that capacity, that, that privilege to be able to make that, full move right like I I know that that's so I really honor the people who are in those alliances doing those interventions and the the last thing I'll say on this because I have a big question I want to ask you but Mm -hmm. I think there's a a sort of triangle like that has three points on it that creates a sweet spot for finding the work you can do in this moment right so I think the first thing is what do you love what do you love? Because that's what you're trying to protect. That's what you're trying to hold. That's what you're trying to, um, that's what should be pulling you forward. That's what's compelling. What mm-hmm. do you love? That will nourish you. You will never, never, never have to worry about like, am I getting this enough, that enough? It's like, no, I love this. Mm-hmm. That'll drive you. The second question is, what are you actually skilled at? What are you actually skilled at, 
right? So a lot of people show up for stuff they love and I'm like, but you don't actually know how to do that. <laughs> so that's not really the reason, right? <laughs> you don't know how to do that. Part you don't know how what, to do that. <laughs> right? Like what you just shared, it's like the mutual aid of people offering from their skill and from what they actually had to offer. When everyone does that, we have everything we need, right? Mm -hmm. So really offering from your skills. And then the third piece of it is, what does your community need? What does your community need? So what do you love? What are you skilled at? And what does your community need? And I think if you find that spot in the middle, that's your sweet spot where you can be a relevant offer into this politically potent mm. moment. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I also think, well, yeah. go ahead. Well, because I have a question for you, sister, because this is like this moment. The other thing that has been helping me, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, are like, this moment is really overwhelming, but it's definitely not the worst moment of all time, right? <laughs> it's definitely not like the worst moment that our lineages have faced. And right. so when I look and feel my way back through slavery and the Holocaust and genocides of indigenous people here, um, and even more recently through Jim Crow, through patriarchy, I think our ancestors survived all of that. And there's so much that they know that if they know it, we know it, Yeah. right? If they know yeah. it, we know it, but we have to access it. So my question to you would be, what lessons of ancestral survival feel mm -hmm. particularly important to uplift to make the most of this political potential moment? God, I love this question. I love this question. Yay. Um, you're so smart. Um, I think um, I think one of the one of the most important lessons that I've been able to glean just as a student of um, history and um, and and as someone who you know really strives to um, be accountable to the lineage of my ancestors. Yes, um, is that what is what it was required for our ancestors to survive the things that our ancestors survived um, is is a belief in a future that is beyond what we can see uh-huh and um and a a willingness to act on behalf of that future knowing that knowing that that future may never actually be experienced by the person who's taking those actions. Yeah. Um, and I think that that we tend to think of that kind of um, belief or activity as, you know, being visionary and it is, and it is visionary. Yeah. It, it's also deeply pragmatic, right? And I think that I think that I think sometimes we forget that that it's not all about vision. It's yeah. also about um, living in reality, right? That I think <laughs> it's also about. I, mean, I think in, being visionary is yeah. pragmatic, but it's I've been both, trying to make right? that case forever. Right. Yeah. It's it's both, but I think that um, you know I think about I'm gonna I'm gonna try to to. Um, make a connection here. So just go with me. Oh, I'm excited. Um, you were talking about the farce as politic. Yes. Right? And I think that this is such a good place for us to notice what the pattern is historically, right? Yes. That the farce as politic 
it's it's problematic on the face of it but it's also problematic because it keeps us distracted from the actual political project of white supremacy which is alive and well right you know it's not you know i i don't subscribe to the the belief that many people have that like this is the death knell of white supremacy white supremacy is alive and well <laughs> and white supremacy as as a system and as an ideology is highly adaptive yes and um and it's elegant i always say to my students like if only it were in service of something good because it's yeah. so good at what it does right yes. <laughs> and it's and it's been and it's been very functional for hundreds of years um and i think that 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 we have to i think we have to do the same thing that our ancestors had to do right which is to recognize all of the ways that we um you know are gaslit into into white supremacy all of the ways that we you know drink the kool-aid of white supremacy all of the ways that we um believe in parts of it in order to remain functional inside it that mm. actually reinforce both the system itself and also reinforce its power inside of us and over our bodies and over our hearts and minds. So, you know, for our ancestors who were enslaved, you know, <clears throat> there was a there was an ideology that governed enslavement. Right? right, an ideology that was operative for white people and also was operative for black people because there was some level at which you had to subscribe to the ideology in order to survive that experience, right? Mm -hmm. And so ancestors, our ancestors who took the incredible risk of becoming fugitive from that system, they had to leap, they had to make a mental, emotional, spiritual leap in order mm -hmm. to do something like that, right? Yes. And to basically decide, I'm going to believe more, you know, as, as Alexis Pauling Gums would say, I was about thinking Harriet of her, Tubman, I was like, I'm going, I, be, I believe in my freedom more than I believe in those systems that say I am not free, right? So, you know, and so we, and we needed both, right? We needed both the people who stayed enslaved and stayed inside the system in order that we survive. And we also needed those who were willing to become fugitive from that system so that we could be free. We needed both, right? Mm. So what is the need in this moment? I think if we look at that farce, like the, 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 the political farce, we have to recognize that that is also an element of the project of white supremacy. And yes. We have to we have to have that both again, where we have the people who are willing to engage with that farce because they know that state that some level of relationship to it is necessary so that we understand what they're doing. Right. Right. And we have to have those of us who are saying, I'm going to operate outside of that. I'm going to operate beyond that. I'm not going to let that farce govern my mind. Right. And which brings me to some of the other things that I think like are how we're really important in terms of uh, lessons from our ancestors for how we survive now. Yeah. Um, I think being able to do that requires a level of spiritual rigor, Oof. right? Spiritual mm. rigor, mental yes. and emotional rigor that many of us are not accustomed to, right? Um, <clears throat> we have, I think in, in our social movements right now, 
um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it, <laughs> um, <laughs> in our social justice movements right now, we have a high level of reactivity and fragility on all sides. Oh yeah. Right. Not a limb. That's not, it's not a limb. I, yeah. It's just like, it's just what we're in, right? The, the high data level of says. the data says <laughs> is a high level of reactivity, a high level of defensiveness and a high level of fragility in response to uh, challenges. Yes. And that makes sense, right? Because we're living under chronically traumatic conditions and that will promote fragility in people. But what we are called to in this moment is a level of spiritual rigor that says, I cannot be moved. I will not be moved. I will not be collapsed by my conditions, right? Yes. And that takes that takes deep practice, yes. deep, deep practice. Um, yeah, and just a word on that is, I think there's such a beautiful thing to say, I will not be collapsed and we will not be collapsed while we rest, right? Yes. Like, yes. <laughs> right, we will rest, rest, we will stagger, we will figure all those things out. Right. Like, I think making that distinction of spiritual rigor is very different from um, physical overdrive or physical, yes. right? Yes, right. That rest is different from collapse, exactly. actually, right? Exactly. Those are not the same thing. Exactly. Um, and I think that for me, this also, that, that, that spiritual rigor for me calls to mind, you know, the particular lineage that, that our work stands in, right? Mm -hmm. The lineage of Black liberation. Um, I think we are called to have a different orientation to victory. Um, I think yeah. about, I like one of the things that I think about in moments like this is like the particular story of the Montgomery bus boycott. And, hmm. and the, the little known aspects of that story, right? The story that, you know, the Montgomery bus boycott um, was preceded by a streetcar boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, 50 years prior, 40 years, 50 years prior. That, yeah. was, that was a failed boycott. Yes. Um, and the same church community that held a leadership role in the streetcar boycott is the church community that held a leadership role in the, in the bus boycott 40, 50 years in the future, right? Yep. There was a process of, of understanding what the failures were that led to the ultimate victory that came through that particular boycott. But that victory still took over a year and a half and required that the community in Montgomery, that the black community in Montgomery, Alabama create an alternative economy of transportation yes. in order for their boycott to be successful, right? Hmm. And I think that that, to me, those kinds of stories, like it is incumbent upon all of us as people who are either organizers or want to be organizers. And I would say, I think everyone needs to be an organizer in this moment, but it's incumbent upon us to really deeply understand um, the, the stories of our organizing history and to know that like all victories happen, all of our wins happen in relationship to failures and all of our failures happen in relationship to our wins. And that's just yes. a true, that's a fact of organizing. That's and right. we have to understand the moment that we are in instead of, you know, feeling, and so that we don't, so that we don't collapse under the pressure of the moment, you know, this, this particular moment, political moment, that we are in is, um, you know, very reflective of, we were in a very similar political moment 40 years ago, right? Yep. Um, in the, you know, in the aftermath of 
some of the major wins of the civil rights movement. We have the election of Nixon, who ran on an explicit white supremacist platform, <laughs> right? And did a ton of work to dismantle, um, to dismantle the wins of the civil rights movement through yeah. a different set of legal mechanisms. Yes. And I think that that's what we have to have our eyes on here, that it's like, there's the farce, the farce, the farce, but what are they actually doing? What, are they, what are they actually doing? What is actually happening in the Supreme Court process? Yes. You know, like it's not just about this pro-abortion or anti-abortion. Um, it's not specifically just about her abortion stance. Exactly. That's not the actually the main reason why an Amy Coney Barrett is a danger to the Supreme Court. Right. There's other things going on there that make her dangerous and make her yes. nomination process dangerous. And yeah. so I think that that's, um, I think that that's, that level of analysis and that willingness to be rigorous in our analysis and rigorous yeah. in relationship to one another is part of how we get through. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Um, Anything else in there? I mean, there's so much else, but <laughs> I know that we also, we, you know, we have to keep it moving. We have to keep it moving. Okay. So, <laughs> um, so I, you know, knowing that, knowing that that these are some of the lessons that we that we pulled from times previous to ours that are either that we could look back on and say they're either more terrible or at least as terrible, right? Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you have wisdom to offer to I know you do. <laughs> um, what wisdom do you have to offer to the intrepid? people in this space with us right now about what our collective priorities should be in this moment. Ah, yes. you know, knowing that, knowing that, um, knowing that the strategies of those who, you know, wish to harm us are very intelligent, very adaptive, and in large part have to do with keeping us disconnected from one another. That's right. That's right. Um, how would you define the priorities for us right now? That's a great question. Mm -hmm. um, and thank you for that breakdown of ancestral spiritual analysis. That was great. I love that. Um, I, more and more, I'm like, I think the main priority for us needs to be staying connected, staying connected with each other. You know, I said this, this quote a few years ago that things are not getting worse, they're getting uncovered and we must hold each other tight and continue to pull back the veil. And right. I still feel that way. I have people are like, no, 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 this is definitely worse. And I'm like, <sighs> you know, I keep repeating this, but I'm like, it's worse relative to your privilege. So if you right. have a ton of privilege, <laughs> if you have a ton of privilege, this is all getting pulled back and you're like, I can't believe it. It's a racist nation, right? Um, but what if accent is that? Jimmy Fallon. But if you no. have been, <laughs> but if you have been, living under racism, or if you've lost someone that you loved, or if you've been in the world, right? If you've been an immigrant, if you've been banned, you know, when you tried to come back home after leaving the country, right. because blah, 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 you have already experienced that it's a racist nation, right? right. Or if you are, you know, just all these rollbacks, all these things are happening and people are like, I can't believe it, that I can't believe it is a sign that you were disconnected from the suffering that was happening on your behalf and with your tax dollars. So a huge portion of it is how do we get deeply in connection with what is and deeply yeah. in connection with how we're participating in what is. Yeah. And then 
I want to think about connection on a couple of levels. One is principles struggle, staying in right relationship with each other, deep connection on that level, right? So everything that I've been thinking about and writing about around cancel culture, around not canceling each other, around staying in relationship, figuring out how we stay in right relationship, even if that means strong boundaries, even if that means accountability processes, whatever it is, that we are engaging with each other in principle struggle, that our goal is elevating the whole, that we are trying to lift ourselves and our people up out of this mess and that we are accountable for how we show up in that struggle. So one huge portion is staying connected at that level. Like we as a movement don't have enough people to be tossing each other away. And we need to Uh figure out how do we hold each other but hold each other accountable. So that's one piece. And then the other piece is on a very material level, staying connected through the internet and through mutual aid. So you spoke about mutual aid as like a groundbreaking aspect of what happened in Minneapolis this summer. And I think it's been a groundbreaking aspect of how many of us have been surviving this pandemic is really learning to ask for help and really learn to see our own abundance, see what we have to offer each other. Yes. That, you know, Alexis Pollingums recently said on on Prentice's um, Finding Our Way podcast, we are not individuals. And it really was just like, yes, if you haven't figured that out yet, like we are not individuals, we are always in network. And like, sometimes the network is flooding with the lava heat of uprising as it did this summer. And sometimes it's flowing with depression as it has been as we head into the fall of like, it's Mm. sad, I'm tired. I don't want to wear a mask anymore. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna vote for it's right. Right? It's like, sometimes that's what's flooding the network. Right. And then sometimes it's uplifted joy, whatever, but we're not alone in it. Alone is a myth. Alone is a story we were told that disconnected us from the sacred gift we have of actually being interconnected. So really holding on to that. And then the internet is like my fave thing. So like really it is your out, fave thing. You know, I love me some internet, but <laughs> it's <laughs> I really love it on a lot of levels and I'm figuring out the right relationship with it. So when I say internet, I don't just mean social media, although I like my social media, (laughs) my curated, I like my very curated social media (laughs) where I only let love in and I only send love out. Like that works for me and, or solutions, not just love, but like solutions. Like I really try to uplift, like there's something horrific happening as per usual, but here's something you can do about it. Now here's an action. Here's a donation. Here's a education. Right. But The internet, I mean, as a whole, allowing us to actually stay connected with each other. That's something our ancestors didn't have. That's something that is still really brand new to us, that we can cut through the noise of all the fake stories and we can be connected so that right now we know that Nigeria is facing the same kind of human rights abuses from authorities that we are, and we can throw our weight behind ending SARS there, the way they have thrown their weight behind our Black Lives Matter movement here. We can support each other and we can connect that, oh, that is connected to what's happening in Palestine. We can make these lines and Mm -hmm. we can say this story, we are not individuals, even as nations, which they try to tell us we are so different and our nation is special. No, we're just the baby nation that's still going through all this stuff that everyone else is still dealing with. So we're all trying to figure this out. And it helps if we understand there's common threads and we can 
be in these conversations. And I don't know how we would have survived this pandemic without all of this capacity to be connected with each other. So I wanna really uplift the, the work of like the Center for Media Justice, the work of Malkia Sorrell, the work of people who have been fighting for us to con con maintain control over our internet and our right to be connected with each other, as well as people like Allied Media Projects in Detroit who've been thinking about how do we teach each other the skills to wire amongst ourselves so we are not constantly relying on corporations that don't love us and don't care about us and definitely don't want our freedom mm -hmm. to keep us connected to each other, right? Right. So right. I feel like um, there's those things. And then the connection we have, you mentioned intergenerational work. And the thing I wanna land on is the connection we have to our children. Like right now, everyone's children are with them, right? And I think that's not an accident. I think it's not an accident that at this moment in history, suddenly we are in our homes with our children or on the phone with people whose children are right there with them through the work and their pace and their play and their imagination and their creativity. I think it's a fundamental ingredient, right? Of how we connect with each other in this time. So I think yeah. that's beautiful. I, I mean, I do think um, since the spring, Yes. When um, when we first moved to distance learning here in Minnesota, yeah, I noticed um, just like a palpable change in me and my children and our lives. Yes. Um, and and I, I could feel the gift of it. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's absolutely one of the most intense things that my children and I have ever been through. And we've been through a lot of really intense things in our yeah. life. Um, this is very intense, right? Having yeah. the, doing, doing what we're doing. And there, there is this beautiful gift in this moment of, um, I think that the constant presence of all of us being, being together um, mm. means that there's so much less that we can hide from our children. Yes. And there's so much more that they have to, because 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 the pandemic and the uprising and the election all of it is impacting their lives very directly. Yes, it means that the the level of conversation we have to be able to have now is so much more um, uh, it's so much more intense and requires a higher level of responsibility on all sides. Yeah, um, and. I'm noticing, I'm noticing their, their capacity to hold complexity is growing alongside mm. mine. Mm. So, <laughs> I mean, I and love it's, that. it's amazing. <laughs> it gives me a lot of hope for what's coming, you know, to yeah. watch these three brilliant beings Perfect. able to like really hold a lot of depth and complexity about their own lived experience. Once they move past the unfairness of it, mm -hmm. um, that has been a gift. Sister, I love talking to you so much. And I love talking to you. So it's just much. like it does such good things for my brain. Um, so I think now we can go into some Q and some A or some Q and T okay. questions and thoughts. <laughs> um, <if> Misty, <laughs> Misty will come back to us. 
Hey, Misty. Oh, hello, I'm back. I'm just sitting in the, the brilliance of all that. And it's such a joy to think about you as just uh, present members here giving us wisdom, but also as future ancestors. So I just wanna express my gratitude off the bat. And yes, there's so many wonderful questions coming through. Uh, how's everybody doing out there? Feel free to shake it out. I imagine everyone's kind of hyped up, so. Here we go. Let's maybe enjoy <laughs> everyone in the room. Keep the thoughts and questions coming. Um, wonderful, doing well. Yes, yes, yes. Please just talk to us. Um, this is a question that quite a few folks were interested in hearing you address. Um, the both of you, I know, have an interest in science fiction. This is addressed to you, Adrian Marie, but I imagine you can share it. Could you share some of your insights into the work of Octavia Butler in particular, mm -hmm. the parable of the seller and the connections with the current crises we are living in uh, in Butler's speculative fiction? Do you think we're on the path to the world Butler imagines? Mm -hmm. uh, should we all move to Acorn or is that currently burning in a forest configuration? Oh, <laughs> I leave that until this live moment. Last part. Wow. Please help us think through that. <laughs> um, was Acorn yeah. created and then burned down in the in the Oregon yeah. fires? Um, right. Well, you know, I think one of the things is I'm going to speak a little spoilerifically here, um, but because I don't believe Octavia's work can be spoiled. So one thing I'll say um, about this is I I get to talk about this a lot because I'm doing Octavia's Parables, which is a podcast with Toshi Regan that's deep diving chapter by chapter into the parables. Um, the great so, Toshi Regan. The great Toshi, the unparalleled Toshi Regan. The unparalleled um, Toshi Regan. Who also sings. But one thing I'll share is we're absolutely on on track for that future. Like the it's it, the, the we're doing the podcast because it's like, yeah. <laughs> um, and even this <laughs> podcast is framed inside of an Octavia Butlerian worldview. Um, and I think one of the biggest aspects of it is the climate aspect is that we are moving towards a situation where we will not have easy access to the basic resources that we need to survive. And the social distracted conditions that we're in right now are keeping us from attending to our shared common threat that we're all gonna have to figure out how to survive. Yeah. So I would say that, and Autumn, I'd love to give you some space on this one because I, I literally have to talk about this all the time. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, as as any of you who have listened to the podcast know, Adrian and I are super fans of Octavia Butler's work. Super fans. And I think, um, you know, for for very legitimate reasons, parable the parable of the sower and the parable of the talents are getting um, a lot of attention, finally getting the level of attention actually that they have deserved all along. Um, I think, was it Parable of the Sower finally made the New York Times bestseller list this it's year, even though did. it was published in like the 80s? Yeah, like a month um, ago. So that's amazing. Um, and I want, I want folks to just also be aware, for people who aren't aware of Octavia Butler's work, I think it's important to note that um, her work, particularly the parables, really is a prophetic text for this time um, and is absolutely... Um, I, I invite everyone to read it, not because we want to like be fear mongers, but because 
um, she both she both offers like a prophecy of this time as well as a set of spiritual practices for this time yes. and a set of lessons for how to be in community and in relationship with one another in a time like this one. Um, and so I think that that is just important to note. Um, and I will say that Octavia Butler wrote some just incredible books that also in, in prophesied our survival in other ways, right? Yes. She took head on, um, she took head on the question of climate crisis. She yes. took head on um, the question of violence. She took head on the question of um, the, like the problem of sexual trauma, which is also endemic to our world, right? Yes. Um, and, and she always would take these conversations and sort of like turn them upside down and force us to look at them through a different viewpoint, right? Like yeah. what if um, like cancer is something that plagues our, our current world? What if, an, what if an alien race came along and was like, actually cancer is highly valuable to us and we want to blend with you because of that, yes. <laughs> right? You know, yeah. she would always, she would take a different, she would, she would force us to look at and reconsider some of the baseline assumptions we bring about what is community, what is danger, what are actual, what are the actual conditions of trauma in our lives? What mm -hmm. are the stories that we tell? Um, and so I think there's a lot, there's a lot to look at and learn from in her work beyond, beyond the parables, even though the parables are most relevant right now in this yeah. moment. Um, and I think that one of the things that's cool about her work is that she was very directly focused on um, agency yes. and, you know, her, her heroines are women who have a high level of agency Yes. And a sense of responsibility for their own lives, their own survival and the survival of those who they love. Mm -hmm. And I think that in that way, she was also inviting us into like whittling away at whatever victim mentality we may be carrying into this moment and saying like, yes, we have been victimized. Yes, we are survivors. And also we have agency and we can, we can if we believe more deeply in ourselves and in our values, anything becomes possible. Yes. You know? I love that. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Thank you, Kaj. I didn't get to say for asking us that wonderful question. Uh, thank you for your responses. Mm. Here's a piece, or here's a question from Caesar. Okay. Uh, Adrian, you wrote a very incredible piece in July on cancel culture and abolition. I found it to be transformative and helpful, mm. but I heard you came under attack from some people. Can you talk about that piece, your forthcoming book, and how your thinking has been evolving since then? I sense that this is a topic that a lot of yes. us are thinking about, so. Um, yeah, I, I will talk about it. So, um, you know, I wrote the piece, like I said, I came back from sabbatical and I was like, what the heck is going on? And one of the what the heck things was that within like the first two weeks of being back, I was getting tons of like di direct messages, private messages, requests to cancel people, cancel people that I didn't know, cancel people that I knew, but barely cancel people that I followed, um, but the algorithm never actually showed me anything of theirs. You know, like just, it was just like to have this very strong reaction um, to people that I, and, and strong consequence for people that I didn't really 
know at all um, on behalf of people that I also didn't really know at all. And it was for all kinds of offenses. And a lot of the people were in movement. And so I wrote this piece because I was like, this is not what movement is supposed to feel like. That was really the essence of what I was wanting to say was this is not the, the essence of it. And the piece really resonated with a lot of people. Like it's the most read thing on my blog and um, it hit it hit a lot of bells. And I heard from a lot of people that were like, this is happening to me. This is happening in my sector. This is happening in our work. It's tearing, we're tearing each other apart. We're tearing each other apart. And it was in a lineage of writing. So I've been writing about this for years. I wrote a piece years ago called We Will Not Cancel Us. And then I wrote um, about transformative justice. And really I've been trying to figure out how do we talk about movement relationship and movement accountability inside the paradigm of transformative justice. So all that happened. And then a few days after um, I started to hear critique and it came in a lot of different forms. And I would say most of it wasn't attack, right? So there was definitely there was definitely like a section of folks who were like, we wanna break this down. We don't understand this. We are not comfortable with this. We don't like the language. So I used some very strong language in the piece um, that felt appropriate to me when I was writing it, felt emotionally appropriate to me when I was writing it. But that was a huge portion of the critique. And then people were like, you need to be very careful because the same thing I was critiquing, which is like, we're collapsing all these different things and giving it all the same consequence. But even as I was writing, I was collapsing those same things. And I was not making clear that I understand those nuances and that we all need to understand those nuances, but we need to figure out new responses. So Autumn was one of the people who helped me to understand what I wasn't seeing. Because, you know, I think one of the beautiful things about being a writer and beautiful things about being in the public sphere is you can only see so much, you know, like all humans can only see so much, but you know, when you're writing and you're really in your own, you get in your um, channel, right? And you're like, I'm flowing down this channel. This is a righteous channel. I like where it leads. And, <laughs> and then someone's like, girl, 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 there's other channels. There's a lake. <laughs> there's a freaking ocean. So I felt like- tributaries. There's some tributaries, girl, we need to like flow some other ideas in there. So particularly around the language, right? I was very, as a writer, I was very defensive initially about the language choices I had made. Cause I was like, I don't want to back down from the language choices. And Autumn really offered me an invitation of like, you don't have to back down from the intensity of what you're talking about, but there are other metaphors that are not so regularly used by the right against us. There are other ways to speak about this. Um, and it really helps. So the upcoming book, I, I really hope and pray is a reflection of all those different conversations that happened in the wake of the piece. So it includes the, uh, that original, like, we will not cancel this piece, which is kind of a almost near poetic visionary text of like, it's so important to me that we don't move as if we have unlimited amounts of human beings. It's so important to me that we don't operate with a constantly shrinking concept of who's with us and who is in our camp. And that's what I see happening in our movements right now is it's like, you know, you find three people who have the same exact precise analysis as you, and then you're using that as a place to judge everyone else. Or you just woke up, you know, that woke, you know, it's just like you literally just figured out feminism or patriarchy or whatever, transphobia, and now you're hurling you know, you're, you become police of that. And that policing 
that, you know, when we're talking about abolition, I'm like, we have to relinquish policing. We have to relinquish the pleasure that comes with policing, the pleasure of looking at someone and being like, I'm better than you. I've got this right and you don't. You are messed up, you are bad, you are not, you're not actually down for justice and I am. Uh Like all of that has to go. It's not, it's not gonna fit on the little boat that we're gonna be able to, (laughs) to move forward on. So the piece is rewritten with different metaphors. I added a section into the book that is, one of the things that I found missing was I I was like looking everywhere for like, is there a good glossary for in our movement of like, here's what we mean by harm. Here's what we mean by abuse. Here's what we mean by this. Here's what we mean by that. And I didn't find something that was like clear, easy to reference. So I didn't try to create that (laughs) because I was like, that's not my specialty. But what I wrote was, here's what I mean. When I'm writing these things, here's what I mean. And I see that as kind of an invitation that for other people, when we're in these conversations, if someone says that, like he harmed me to be able to be like, and can we talk, what do you mean by that? Like when you're saying harm, because what you might mean is abuse or what you might mean is offense or what you might mean is this is a contradiction or this is a conflict. Mm -hmm. And what I want us to get excellent. I want us to be elegant at conflict. I want us to be great at principle struggle and generative conflict and I want us to be constantly growing our skill at holding each other accountable. Mm-hmm. That when, you know, when someone does cause harm, all the different kinds of levels of harm, when someone causes harm, that we have tools in our community for what we do. And that we're not just constantly pushing people to some other community where they will keep doing whatever they've done and eventually land in the state's hands if, it, if it's egregious enough, right? Which is what happens now. I also, I'll say this, it's a long answer, but it's a, it's a big thing. And of course, this, this book is coming out um, basically this month. So I'm like, you know, I really want it to be considered well. I really want people to read it and not necessarily to like it, but I want it to get people into the same conversations that I got to be in all summer. Um, that's like, what do we mean by these things? What is our stance on these things? And if we are abolitionist, what are we willing to practice every day with each other? And I'm, I'm, you know, when you talk about spiritual rigor, Autumn, I feel like this has been my spiritual rigor practice this summer has been like, okay, I also, I don't want to be canceled and I don't want to cancel anyone else. I don't want to cut people off and I don't want to be cut off. I want to be in right relationship with people. Um, And I have to recognize that there's a lot of ways of being abolitionist right now. And that's what I want us to be unsurfacing. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, how do we bring that up? or surfacing. How do we, how do we bring up? (laughs) What is the word for the word? Um, You know, and what was the thing I was like? Oh, and also to not like, I don't want us to be indulging abuse. I don't want the thing to be like, oh, if you don't ride for it exactly this way, you're indulging abuse. So to me, I'm trying to open up the door for saying, actually there do like in every community, there needs to be people who support those who are causing harm so that they can break the patterns and we don't just end up in these same patterns. And there need to be those who are supporting survivors. And right. we need to figure out which role are you well-suited to, right? When someone gets yeah. called out, there needs to be like, okay, here's the committee. Someone just got called out. We're gonna show up and make sure that they don't, they don't, um, they can't disappear. Right. They won't disappear. How are we gonna make sure that when they don't disappear, what they become, what they grow into is something that belongs to us. 
right? So it's really scholarship of belonging always. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for that. I wonder, um, because so much in that I won and it's being put in our chat box, I love this notion of elegant conflict um, and language and ideas around who's with us and the problematics of that, but also working together and so forth. And I'm curious, how do you think about boundaries within that too? So in our work of working together and uh, building solidarity and so forth, how do both of you also navigate thinking about boundaries? Mm. Favorite topic of the moment. I know. Uh, <laughs> I love boundaries so much. Yes. I think, um, I guess what I'll say about this to begin, and then I want to just hand it to you, Adrian, too, because I feel like this is one that, this is this is something that Adrian and I talk, we, we basically talk about boundaries like every day. Um, <laughs> I feel like, like in our private chat, it's just like, how's your boundaries? How's your boundaries? Um, <laughs> I feel I feel like when, you know, one of my lessons of my life over the last few years has been that, um, speaking of boundaries, ding, ding, um, has been that um, you can't have boundaries without a sovereign sense of I, you know, yeah. you can't, you can't really have or know what your boundaries are without a sovereign sense of yourself. Um, and that is a very hard that's, that's a hard journey, you know, it's, it can be painful um, to figure out who are you yourself in relationship to others, not who are you blended with others or who are you compared to others, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, most, many of us um, are socialized to understand ourselves primarily in comparison or blended with and not in relationship to other people. Um, and I think that for me, it's been that journey of really become like becoming like familiar with myself and being able to sense my own emotions mm -hmm. and my own experiences and my own truth. Um, it's through that, that sense making of myself that I am now able to have boundaries with others. <laughs> And um, because, because doing that sense-making of myself has helped me figure out with greater clarity where my, you know, what is my yes? What is my no? When do I feel a full body yes to something? And when do I feel a full body no? Or when am I feeling a like, oh, I need more information. I just, I need more information. I don't know about that. That's what people in the Midwest say. If they disagree with something, they say, I don't know about that. So I think that I, I, I think that, you know, and, and the, and boundaries are like, you know, it's lifelong work. It's not yes. like, it's not like you figure it out and then, you know, you're good. It's more like you, you, you learn to be able to notice, you know, for me, for me, the journey has involved learning to notice where a boundary is needed. Yes. I have to notice that first before I learn how to articulate what it is and how to articulate it with like love for myself and love for another person so yeah. that it doesn't come out sideways. Um, <laughs> because I think that historically it was more that what, by the time I even realized that there was a need for a boundary, it had, my boundary had already been violated so many times that I couldn't then articulate it without 
it coming without it coming out sideways or without it being a uh, you know hostility. Yeah. Um, and so what I think I'm learning now in my life is to notice where a boundary is needed and to get better at articulating that as quickly as possible yes. and trusting you know, that the other person who I'm articulating it to can handle me being an adult, you know. That's right, mm-hmm. sister. I love that. Like, um, I ain't gonna be an adult and you're going to handle it. And it's gonna be okay at the end. Um, <laughs> yeah, because I feel two things about this. Um, one is I feel like a lot of the calls for cancellation are actually related to boundaries. And it's actually when people need a boundary and they're saying, I need this person to not be able to just be in my face, be on my screen, be in my life. And I don't know how else to ask for that. And then that gets, that turns into this. It's like, no one should see this person. No one should <laughs> right. ever know this person exists. Right. And in that disappearance, sometimes people are pushed towards accountability and a lot of times not. So the boundary to me is a way of, of, you know, learning to articulate the boundary. It's like, oh, actually I need this boundary. And what would it look like to live inside that boundary? And do I trust this other person to be able to honor my boundaries or not? Because I can say a boundary and someone can't be ready to participate in holding that. And then I need community support. And then, you know, you figure that out. I'm the kind of person who had to learn boundaries through group process. So I had to have, (laughs) okay. I, I was like, I can help other people have boundaries, but when it comes to my personal boundaries, I need a squad and I need a team that I check in with. I'm like, this mm-hmm. just happened. And then all of them are like, hell no. And I'm like, oh, so that would be a boundary. <laughs> right. That would be a boundary. <laughs> okay. All right. So great. Right. And, and I think that's the, the part of me that is strong. The part of me that is a great facilitator is the part of me that is able to flow and kind of octopus out and kind of feel a lot more than I can explain how I can feel it. And there's all this stuff that happens that is good news. But then I've had to, as my adulting process has been learning, like, how do I be a boundary octopus? How do I be someone who can really let yours be yours and mine be mine? Yes. And the other piece of this I'll say is even the process of giving advice. So my friend Malkia has been teaching me this lately that I grew up and probably in our sister friendship, you know, you have definitely experienced this is if someone says something to me, I'm like, I will fix you. And I will, (laughs) you Virgo, you, I will offer you advice (laughs) because obviously that's what you need right now, because you said a thing. And so I know what that means. Right. And one of my big lessons has been, oh, everyone who is expressing themselves is not asking for my advice because my advice is actually a way that I'm offering my judgment that I know Uh, something about this that's better than mm -hmm. what you know and I think that kind of thing also plays out to the level of conflict and and trauma and all this stuff because we we are judging each other all the time we are giving each other all kinds of stuff without consent we are crossing each other's boundaries all the time and not knowing how in an interaction be like I didn't actually ask for advice right now so you know one thing with Autumn and I I think I can say this, that we've been getting better at is I've been trying to say, what kind of support do you need right now? Like, yes, how do you yeah. want to be listened to right now? Yeah. <laughs> and try to find that out. Because if I don't get, if I don't ask for that guideline that I ask you for the boundary, my nature as a big sister is to just push in and be like, here's what, here's how I can right. fix this. Right. And 
it's, and then it's both of us learning to then be like, oh, and here's what it is. Right. right. Like, and, and me, I, and me learning to trust that, like trust myself and knowing what I actually need in that moment, yes. which has also been like a huge growth arc, right. Of being like, exactly. Oh, I actually, yeah, I do just, I need to complain. That's it. That's all. Exactly. I need. Right? I'm like, Oh, <laughs> like I don't ever, you know, I was like, that doesn't occur to me to just, compl-. I'm like, that's great. Like that's been a liberating mm-hmm. thing. Like sometimes you just complain and you don't have complaining a complaining is amazing. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> or, you know, it's that movie what's that movie with the fi- inside out, right? Where it's just like, sometimes you just need to be sad and someone just needs to yeah. sit with you while you're sad. And I'm always like, I see that you're sad and here's how we could make it so you're never sad again, which is not actually possible, but that's what I'm thinking. So I feel like so much of, of this is like, it's really, really basic and it takes incredible rigor every day to start to drop into the honesty that you have to be in with yourself and right. others to articulate the boundaries you need, Mm -hmm. to articulate the help you need. Yeah. And, you know, to tie a neat little bow on it here at the last moment of of our time with you all, it's not an accident that we struggle so much with boundaries. Not at all. Because we live in a police state. And so it's like, you know, when you're, when we live, when when you live under these kinds of oppressive systems, you know, part of how we all learn to navigate living inside of these oppressive systems is through some level of dissociation so that we're not having to notice the boundary violations as often, right? It's how we're all using these surveillance devices without realizing that we're being surveilled. Yes. Even though we're signing documents. We're even documents, opting into it. <laughs> we're opting in. We're saying, yes, give it to me. Like, what? I don't care. So I'll like, give you all Alexa, please surveil exactly. me. Right? Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're opting into a lot of these kinds of experiences without really thinking about it. Yeah. And, and so that's part of the boundaries work too, of just being like, ah, there's maybe quite a lot in my life that's going to have to shift. Yes. Where, where's, what's the first boundary I can set? Beautiful. Like, let's just start one at a time. <laughs> That's beautiful. Thank you, sister. That was Thank wise. you. Thank you for listening to our show. And thanks again to the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Program at Dartmouth College. We are on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash into the world show. Another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is write us a review on Apple podcast. If you're an iPhone person, how to survive the end of the world is produced and edited by the incomparable Zach Rosen and music for today's show comes from Tundale Anaran and Mother Cyborg and Chad Crouch. Thank you.